All right, welcome to this week's Energy Show. Now, we've all heard the news. Unfortunately, PG&E will be filing for bankruptcy. They haven't filed yet, but they've announced that they will be filing. It's a really big deal for everybody in Northern California who's using electricity, but it's especially a big deal for the solar industry and for solar customers in Northern California. I think also it's a harbinger for other investor-owned utilities around the country that for a variety of reasons, and perhaps because of global warming and the, the weather's getting hotter and we're more dependent on electricity and a lot of other reasons, this might happen again. It's likely to happen again to other utilities. Now, you know, just have to be straightforward with you. PG&E has been my biggest competitor for almost 20 years. As you know, rooftop solar competes with utility-supplied power. So, you know, always kind of butting heads with PG&E and their policies. But I have to give them credit. PG&E has been the best utility I've ever dealt with in terms of solar all around the U.S. You know, they have currently about 20,000 hardworking employees. And these employees are all generally doing good work, keeping our lights on, trying to maintain safe delivery of electricity and gas. So bankruptcy is going to have implications for the solar customers and battery customers and ratepayers at large. I'd say most likely, kind of in a bizarre sort of way, this bankruptcy is going to probably be positive for solar customers, but it's going to be very disruptive to their utility-scale installation. So if you're a business or a homeowner with solar on your roof, rates are going to go up, and so solar is going to make more sense. If you're doing utility-scale installations, if you're a utility solar installer, it's going to make it a little bit less certain as far as what the payback is and the reliability of the payments from utility customers. That's going to be at least a little bit negative, I think, at least initially. So to help step us through the legal issues of PG&E's bankruptcy, it's my pleasure to introduce Angela Lapanovich. She's an attorney with Estriatus Law. She specializes in legal issues that relate to solar installers, manufacturers, financiers, and customers. Now, I've had the pleasure of working with Angela for over a half a dozen years. She was my first attorney at Akina Solar. She's one of the most experienced solar industry lawyers that I know of. So welcome to the show, Angela. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, Barry. All right, good. Well, tell us a little bit more about the kinds of work you do at Estriatus Law. So currently, I'm the president of Estriatus Law. I'm an attorney. I work on a range of matters exclusively focused on solar and the more broad renewable energy industry. Currently, I'm working on multiple large commercial solar projects here in California. I'm also working on several utility-scale solar projects in Kenya. Last year, I was the general counsel for Monterey Bay Community Powers CCA, our local CCA here in the Monterey Bay area. Generally, I provide general counsel services for clients. These include kind of day-to-day legal needs, corporate governance, acquisitions, and a variety of dispute resolutions. In regard to today's discussion, I am not a bankruptcy attorney, but I have managed bankruptcy-related matters for my clients um, over the years as a solar attorney, um, given the unfortunately frequent high number of bankruptcies in our industry. Okay. Well, good news, bad news there. At least we're talking to the right person. Let's dig into the PG&E bankruptcy filing. Just give us a the real high-level overview there. On a high level, on January 14th, PG&E filed a bankruptcy notice that it plans to file Chapter 11 bankruptcy by the end of the month on January 29th. Given its kind of state of business, it's most likely that PG&E is going to be required to proceed with the bankruptcy process unless the state lawmakers step in, and that's because its current liabilities from the 2017 and 2018 fires are about 10 times its current market cap of $3.5 billion, 
which is down about 90% since last fall. And obviously this is a very big issue since PG&E is the state's largest utility as a territory that runs from Eureka to Bakersfield and about 106,000 miles of grid. So in general, what happens to a company that goes into bankruptcy? Well, there's two types of bankruptcy. There's a Chapter 7 and a Chapter 11. Chapter 7 is when the company just basically stops doing business, trustee sells all the company's assets, and then the proceeds are distributed to the creditors with the residual amount going to the owners. Here, in this case, PG&E filed Chapter 11, and that's the other second type of bankruptcy, and that's where a company remains in business and the owners remain in control as what's called a debtor in possession, and that is absent a showing of cause. There are cases when the court can appoint a trustee. And then under this type of Chapter 11 bankruptcy, the business must file a reorganization plan, which is basically a restructuring of how the company does business. And then that plan must be approved by a court through a very specific court process. And during the bankruptcy proceeding, there's an automatic stay that's placed on almost all litigation against the business and any creditor's ability to collect on outstanding debts. The court's going to have control of all of the company's major business decisions. This includes sale of assets, entering or modifying contracts, payments of fees or expenses to service providers. And then there's going to be the judge in the creditors committee is going to be going over PG&E's financials with a fine-tooth comb and ultimately deciding which creditors get paid. And they're also going to be monitoring PG&E to make sure it keeps its expenses in check. So I, I, oh, go okay. ahead. Right, so I also remember from dealing with other our creditors that are in bankruptcy that the judge can claw back any payment from a creditor, so any payment from PG&E within 90 days of bankruptcy. That sounds right. I'm not sure about I don't have the exact time frame in front of me. Yeah, so the reason why I'm, I'm just mentioning it is if you're in the solar industry and PG&E just paid you any money over the last 90 days, then they may be able to claw that back. So it's just something to watch out for for people in the solar industry. It's, yeah. It doesn't apply to things like SGIP rebates. or right. hold on. So that wouldn't apply to things like rebate payments that PG&E makes because that comes from different funds. They're just administering that. Right. If you're a creditor of PG&E, the best thing to do at this point is to contact the bankruptcy attorney and stay involved in proceedings because there's a lot of deadlines coming up. And if you miss things, unfortunately, that's kind of the dark side of bankruptcy. You might be stuck. Okay. What happened with PG&E's earlier bankruptcy in 2001? So in 2001, they also went through Chapter 11 bankruptcy. They emerged about three years after the filing. In that case, PG&E filed a reorganization plan as is going to happen here. And then the CPUC filed a competing reorganization plan. And then there was a trial over that plan. And then ultimately a settlement was reached between CPUC, PG&E, and the official committee of unsecured creditors, all of which will likely be parties here. And the result of that settlement was that PG&E remained intact under CPUC regulation, but that PG&E was allowed to pass about $7 billion of its costs onto customers through increased rates. There's a difference between that 2001 bankruptcy and this, the current one, and then that 2001 bankruptcy was solvable through policy changes. For example, they were able to scrap energy deregulation, and they were able to negotiate settlements between the state and various parties to return the utility to solvency. And in this case, even if they solve PG&E's past financial issues, the concern is that there's the possibility of more fires and unknown other impacts, and there's potentially this unsolvable risk. So did PG&E take bonds out to pay for these debts? That I think these were like 20-year bonds. 
Yeah, I believe they're still paying back. Those bonds are still being paid back. Right, right. And, and you I can, have the number in front of me. Yeah, you can see the fine print on your utility bill, but it, the, they should almost be paid back. So California passed a law last year that allowed PG&E to issue bonds for their fires in 2017. Tell us a little bit about that. Correct. Governor Brown signed SB 901, called the, I think it's called the Wildfire Bill, and that allowed CPC to let PG&E issue bonds to pay off its fire liabilities with those bonds being repaid by ratepayers, but that law only applied to fires in 2017 and earlier. It didn't apply to the 2018 fire or any later fires. And given that the 2018 campfires already far surpassed the damages from the 2017 fires, it's pretty clear that the state would need to do something different to assist PG&E now. It's a little unclear what that's gonna look like. Um, it's one thing that's being discussed, or there's many things that's being discussed, is that PG&E might be broken up. Lawmakers are definitely discussing that as a possibility. So right. I kind of read about it in the papers that there's like $30 billion of liabilities from these campfires. And these liabilities are, these people were burned out of their houses, killed in some cases. They must be paid. The state's not going to walk away from it. So PG&E has some insurance. They have some assets, and they'll have to pay some of that back, and that's one of the reasons why I guess they're going to be talking about selling their entire natural gas business to come up with enough cash. And then the bankruptcy judge, and bankruptcy judges look at the debts that a, that a bankrupt company has, and they say they're going to, and the judge negotiates those amounts down. But you know, I just can't see any heart, judge being that heartless to say to people, "We're not going to give you a hundred thousand for your home; we're only going to give you fifty. So those those debts are going to pay. And I really can't see the state of California paying off these liabilities and bailing PG&E out. It's not fair to the Southern California and, and the rest of the, the state. So kind of the only big pot of money after PG&E taps all the cash they have is for bonds. And that's probably the most likely. I mean, I'd also love to see if PG&E can be turned into some kind of giant municipal utility, effectively statifying it, because it's not a national thing. It's statifying it. That would be well, a tremendous utility. I don't think see how they could do that. There, unfortunately, is another source of potential money, which I believe might come up in this bankruptcy proceeding, and that is whether or not the court would allow PG&E to renegotiate any contracts with renewable energy providers that with historically high prices. Currently, PG&E's current weighted average solar PV PPA price is approximately $140 per megawatt hour. The current solar PPA sign today is priced at $32.50 per megawatt hour. So renegotiating the, the past contracts at today's prices would actually save PG&E approximately $2.2 billion a year. It's really an open issue about whether the court could allow that. In Ohio right now, a court did just that, and it's being appealed up to the federal court system. Ah, okay. But it's really an open issue. All right. Okay, so Angela, it's fascinating. So the, the bankruptcy judge could go back to these companies that have PPA revenues, yield companies, yield codes or whatever, and say, we're not going to give you the full amount of those revenues. I mean, how could that be fair going from payments that they were expecting of $140 a megawatt hour, which works out to 14 cents a kilowatt hour, which, you know, kind of high that high now, compared to 3.2 cents a kilowatt hour. What's going to happen to these companies that are expecting these revenues that installed these systems years ago? Well, and clearly there's going to be a significant loss to the investors in the project, and we'll see, you know, how those losses get pushed around. There will be an increased cost of building any new renewable energy projects where the utility is the off-taker, credit rating downgrades of those existing projects, and it's disruptive for sure. 
So it's going to really have a, a negative effect on new utility scale installations. You know, that's what new the industry. New utility scale where the utility is the off taker. Where the utility is the off taker. Okay. So what about if it were to a CCA, a community choice aggregation company? They're not going to be included in that kind of price negotiation because they're the contracts between the developer and CCA. The one area that, because one of my clients is a CCA, the Monterey Bay Community Power, and they actually just start, signed the largest solar plus storage contract that's ever been signed in the U.S. They're not so worried about that getting changed. The one thing area where they are concerned is that PG&E acts as kind of a service provider for all the CCAs meaning that they collect all the money from the customers and then they remit it to the CCAs. So they just want to make sure that during this bankruptcy process that all of that money is, you know, regularly remitted to them. And they, so far, the CCAs are believing that that money and that service relationship will be looked at as a pass-through and won't be affected in the bankruptcy proceedings. However, there's always a risk. All right, so let's talk a little bit more about the impact of this bankruptcy on stakeholders. And before we get to that, I was very curious about what would happen with this $30 billion worth of liabilities. And I did some research and contacted some investment banks. And there's some data out there that they're expecting that for every $10 billion in liabilities that PG&E has to pay, they may have to pay 30 I expect it's going to be crammed down to 20 But the data shows that if they were to take out bonds for $10 million in these liabilities, it would raise current residential rates by about 5%. So if it ends up being $20 billion in liabilities, rates are going to go up by 10%. These are very preliminary numbers, lots of factors. But, and, but that 10% increase is on top of ongoing electrical inflation. So I would say from a ratepayer standpoint, from a residential ratepayer standpoint, because of these fires in 2018, rates could go up by 10%. That's not including what may happen to rates when PG&E has to actually do more maintenance, and that may affect rates more. So, Angela, what about other impacts on stakeholders at PG&E? It's unlikely that the electricity is going to be affected as far as delivery goes to any of PG&E's service customers. pg and is a regulated utility. There are processes and procedures in place to make sure electricity flows regardless of what happens during a bankruptcy proceeding. And as you mentioned, the end result is likely that there will be a rate increase unless the state steps in to socialize the cost. I've seen numbers as high as 14% increase likely unless the state steps in, but it's a little unknown. I think the other thing that could end up affecting the customers, the ratepayers, is that if there's any impact to PG&E's clean energy programs, such as this energy efficiency, smart grid, energy storage and microgrids, that could ultimately affect the customers. And I do think that they're going to become a target for cost reduction in the bankruptcy proceeding. But I also think that they'll probably survive any attempts to reduce them. The reason I think that is in the PG&E's 2001 bankruptcy, NRDC and PG&E successfully moved to exempt its public purpose programs from the bankruptcy creditors. However, this is a really big issue as PG&E is currently the state's largest investor in energy efficiency and EV infrastructure. It has annual commitments of over $1 billion. And also PG&E had plans to build out a network of electric car charging stations. So that's definitely going to come down and affect the customer. 
if that doesn't get built. Successful. Yeah. yeah. Well, your 14% rate increase is pretty much spot on with, with the estimates that I've been crunching through, which is 5% for every $10 billion in liability. So if there's $30 billion in liabilities, which is the most common number I've seen thrown around, that's 15%. What about the PG&E employees? What's going to happen to them? Or typically what happens in a company's employees when they go into bankruptcy? So in a bankruptcy proceeding, companies can alter the labor agreements. So this does raise the prospect that the workers' pensions could be affected. For example, the airlines have fallen under intense scrutiny for what many see as them using Chapter 11 bankruptcy simply as a tool for escaping labor contracts. So it's definitely going to be an issue here as well. What about other services? I mean, here in the solar industry, we're very dependent on PG&E processing interconnection paperwork and processing the SGIP rebate payments. And, and you also talked about EV paperwork and energy efficiency paperwork. Is that going to possibly slow down? As the bankruptcy process proceeds, the expenses, there's likely going to be cuts to the operational budget. Might be layoffs, and so there will likely be fewer people to process the paperwork. And I would predict that there's going to be a slowing of the interconnection processing applications. And anytime there's a dispute, just kind of the people available to be there, you know, responding and resolving the issues. Yeah, so probably, you know, management's going to say, this isn't really that essential, so let's just slow down the interconnection processing and, and paperwork. And I have to say, PG&E's been absolutely terrific about almost completely automating the interconnection process. I mean, we're typically seeing it go through in, in fewer than five business days. And on the S-chip side, which has been a little bit of a nightmare, they've also been getting a little bit better. But I think there's a lot of people involved, and we'll see what happens with that. So when PG&E issued these bonds the last time, they were considered to be part of these things called non-bypassable charges. In other words, the repayment of the bonds was not something that would be credited towards net metering. So I expect if there's a bond that's issued, or future bonds, it would effectively be considered part of the non-bypassable charges and reduce the benefits from net metering. So right now, the non-bypassable charge is 2 or $0.03 cents a kilowatt hour. So if electric rates go up by $0.10, cents, that non-bypassable charge would go up to 12 or $0.13 cents a kilowatt hour. But the thing to remember about these non-bypassable charges is that's only when you're running the meter backwards. If you're self-consuming, you still get the benefit. So if electric rates went up by $0.10, cents, then you're still getting the saving that $0.10. Cents. And if instead of net metering, you store your energy in a battery, you're also going to get the same benefit. You're not going to get hit by these the reduction in the non-bypassable charges. So self-consumption is going to be good. And I think there's going to be even a bigger benefit for battery systems from an economic standpoint for customers. And we'll talk about, I think in a, in a minute, we can talk about what the batteries could do for possibly reducing these future fires. But, but kind of going forward, Angela, what's going to happen with PG&E's electrical distribution services? You know, how are they going to manage to prevent more fires? How, how is that going to affect their costs? Well, interestingly, simultaneous to the bankruptcy case that we're talking about is that there's a federal court case related to the probation term imposed on PG&E in 2017 after it was convicted of six felony counts for violating federal pipelines, pipeline laws in the 2010 San Bruno uh, pipeline explosion. And in that case, the judge just ordered a hearing on the proposed plan to force PG&E to inspect all 106,000 miles of his electric grid and to repair and trim any trees where necessary by June 21st of this year. A hearing on that is scheduled for January 30th in the U.S. District Court in San Francisco. So 
So we'll see what the results of that hearing, <laughs> what comes out of that. But if the judge's plan is adopted, that would actually create a parallel oversight with the CPUC by a federal court of PG&E's business operations. And then also separately, the CPUC has an open investigation into whether PG&E falsified gas line pipeline safety records. So I don't think that there's a specific answer to that question, except for that there's a lot of focus from a lot of different angles. We'll see what results. Yeah, and, and, you know, I'm always wondering, like, okay, where's the money going to come from if they couldn't trim the trees before? How are they going to be able to trim the trees now? So, so Angela, kind of taking a big step back, what's the long-term solution here? I think the long-term solution to the fires is to bury the power lines. I think it's a little absurd that that hasn't happened. They're about to spend, you know, a lot of money going through this bankruptcy process, and it's a shame to see that that money doesn't get spent on burying the power lines. <laughs> it's doable. I also think that there's likely going to be a reorganization of PG&E, and likely that its distribution portion of its business is going to be broken out and possibly placed under the control of the CCAs, which will be localized, smaller, kind of manageable control. And then, you know, obviously the other solution is to grow the clean tech industry. Mostly, I think it's going to be business as usual, but the bankruptcy is definitely going to have some negative effects on any developers that have contracts to supply PG&E with electricity. Any entities that have disputes with PG&E, their cases are getting stayed, and there's going to be some other, you know, minor things. But other than that, I think it'll be business as usual, and hopefully the clean tech energy industry can use this as an opportunity. Yeah, I kind of look at it as more economic factors. Unfortunately, they're spurred by a disaster, but more economic factors that are going to make it clear that microgrids are good, locally generated power is good, locally stored power is good, and electric rates are going to go up. There's just no doubt that they're going to keep going up, and that's going to make solar and battery storage even more cost-effective, and we're going to see a, a much faster transition to people with systems that include batteries. So just to kind of wrap up, Angela, how can people get in touch with you at Estriatus Law? Definitely. You can find me on the web <laughs> at www.estriatuslaw.com. It's E-S-T-R-I-A-T-U-S-L-A-W.com. And you can always send us an email as well at info at All the information is on the web. All right, great. Well, that's all the time we have on this week's Energy Show. Thanks for joining me on the show, Angela. It was great. This is your second time on the show. You're a great guest. And thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in. If you missed any of today's show, you can go to our website at cinnamon.energy and listen to the podcast. 